Scripture reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not know what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambi ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Thank you, Terry, for reading that. Uh, and um, good morning to all of you here at Christ Community Church. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, in addition to Terry's welcome, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Drew, and I'm one of the pastors. 
And I'm typically not the one up here preaching. Pastor Ken is our uh, senior pastor. He does the lion's share of the preaching. He's on a writing leave, and so I'm going to be filling in uh, in the meantime. So if you're here as a guest, thank you for coming. Uh, We're glad that you're here. Uh, We are going to be taking just a a brief uh, break from our Romans preaching series, Romans 5 through 8, which we've been in for a couple of months now. We're going to take a break for three Sundays, starting today, to take a look at Galatians chapter 5. We'll be there for three weeks. We're going to break it up into three sermons. This week, we're going to deal with verses 1 through 12. Next week, we'll deal with verses 13 to 15. And then the third Sunday, we'll deal with the remainder of the chapter. And the reason that I chose uh, Galatians chapter 5, one, was because Ken asked me to choose something uh, outside of Romans 5 through 8. He's got that pretty well laid out for uh, his preaching schedule. And so I thought, well... I don't want to do something completely different than what we've been uh, talking about and what we've been studying for a couple of months now, so I thought Galatians would be a good place to start. And in Galatians chapter 5, we come up against a lot of the, the, the very themes that we've been talking about in the book of Romans. We will talk about justification. We will talk about the flesh or the sinful nature, what the NIV sometimes calls the sinful nature. We'll talk about the spirit. We'll talk about fulfilling the law. These are things that are, uh, these are topics that recur again and again in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. And so I want to study the chapter 5 of Galatians because it deals with these very topics, just from a different angle, which will be interesting for us, I think, for a few weeks. So that's the plan. Uh, That's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a few weeks in Galatians chapter 5, and I think it will be fruitful to you, and it already has been uh, really fruitful to me just in my study and my preparation, so I hope that you'll um, experience some of that today. Before we take a closer look at God's Word in Galatians chapter 5, let's just pray for a moment and let's ask God for for His help. Father, as we take a look at Your Word this morning, we just want to pause to acknowledge our reliance on you, our reliance on uh, your work in our lives, without which um, we can study your word, we can look at it all we want, and we will, we will gain nothing. But through your spirit working in us by faith, we can understand your word and apply it and be the kind of people that you want us to be Um, as described in your word. And so we pray that you would do that in us this morning by looking at Galatians 5 and trusting in your work in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in all of our lives, uh, as Christians, there come seasons where we experience uh, seasons of, of dryness. We, we all, it's just kind of a common experience, but we will, we will hit these seasons in our spiritual lives where we feel just kind of spiritually plateaued. Just like we're not making the kind of spiritual progress that we would like to be making. All of us will experience these seasons, these spiritual plateaus, these, these seasons where we're not making the kind of progress that we would like to be making. And, of course, the reason for these seasons in our lives are, are due to many different reasons. 
um, sometimes it's due because of some sin that we're dealing with in our lives. Something that we're battling, some sin that we're battling in our lives can sometimes result in these seasons where we're not experiencing the kind of spiritual progress that we would like to be making. Other times, it's just due to difficult situations in our lives. Maybe something's going on at work that we're dealing with. Uh, Maybe it's something in our home lives or in our families, just a difficult situation can sometimes result in these seasons of dryness where we just feel like we're not making spiritual progress. Other times, it's due just because of the season of life that we're in. Uh, Some of us who have um, young kids at home, sometimes life just feels busy and we just feel depleted. The opposite is also true. For those of us who are caring for aging parents, life can just sometimes feel depleted. And so, as a result, we can experience these dry spells. And sometimes, it's a combination of all the above. All these different reasons can contribute to spiritual plateaus in our lives. But when these spiritual plateaus, these seasons of dryness, come into our lives, we have a decision to make. There's a choice that we can make. We can address these seasons the way that God says to address them, or we can address these seasons the way that man says to address them. The way that God says to address these seasons of spiritual stagnancy will put God at the center and will focus on God. And the way that man says to address these seasons in our lives will focus on man and will put man at the center. One avenue for spiritual progress will glorify God and will lead to a life of freedom. And the other avenue for spiritual progress will glorify man and will lead to a life of slavery. Both options are open to us, but only one will result in the kind of progress and the kind of growth that we're hoping for, that we're looking for in the Christian life. Well, in the letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul is interested in this very issue. This is the reason he writes the letter to the Galatians. He wants to remind Christians how it is that we progress in the Christian life, how it is that we make progress, how we grow in the Christian life. And so if you read through the letter to the Galatians, which I would encourage you to do over the next couple of weeks, as we're uh, studying Galatians chapter 5. But what you'll find is Paul's recurring argument throughout the letter to the Galatians is that the way that we progress in the Christian life, the way that we experience growth, is the same way that we began the Christian life. He's going to say over and over that if we began the Christian life by faith in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, then the way that we will make any progress in the Christian life, the way that we will grow is also by that same faith in Jesus Christ and through the same power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing else is needed for your spiritual growth. And while the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, he isn't interested in promoting a doctrine of human passivity. He's not teaching that man... Uh, isn't responsible for anything or that you can just be a passive agent in the Christian life. He's not interested in teaching that, but he is interested in combating any man-made formulas that place the emphasis on man 
to produce his spiritual progress in the Christian life. Because it can't be done. The only human works, the only human efforts that count for Paul are the kind that result from one's faith in Jesus Christ and that result from the work of the Spirit in your lives. That's the only kind of work that counts for Paul. And so in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, our text for this morning, Paul's going to remind us that our faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit are enough to supply us with what we need for the Christian life. And that to adopt any other view of the Christian life is to adopt a lifestyle of slavery. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So right away, at the intro to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, right here, the first thing he says to us is that we need to stand firm in our freedom. Christ has purchased freedom for us and we need to stand firm in this freedom. And the freedom that Paul is referring to here in verse 1 is the freedom from having to rely on anything outside of our faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit to provide us what we need for the Christian life. That's freedom. And this is true whether we're talking about our entrance into the Christian life or whether we're talking about progressing or growing in the Christian life or whether we're talking about one day completing the Christian life. Everything that we need to live the Christian life is supplied by our faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit. But for the Galatians, the Galatian believers, those that the Apostle Paul is writing to, they actually believe that in addition to your faith in Jesus, and in addition to the, the power of the Spirit working in your lives, you needed something else. And what you needed was the law of Moses. The law of Moses would provide you what you needed for the Christian life. But Paul says that kind of mentality, that's, that's a yoke of slavery. That's going back to what you've been rescued from. Now the reasons that the Galatian believers were tempted to rely on the law of Moses and not rely solely on their faith in Jesus and the work of the Spirit was probably for two main reasons. They were probably looking to the law of Moses for two main reasons. The first reason was that they hoped that the law of Moses would help them establish their relationship with God. They believed that just like in the Old Testament, that the way that someone should identify as a member of God's family was by observing the law, by observing the 613 commands found in the Old Testament. That's how one said, I'm in the family of God. And they said, this is the way it still works today. But what they failed to recognize is that with the coming of Christ, a new era had dawned. And in that new era, the way that someone now identifies as a member of God's family is not by the works of the law, but by your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. Your faith in Jesus is what counts. That's what establishes your relationship with God. The second reason that the Galatian believers were looking to the law of Moses was not just they hoped that it would establish their relationship with God. 
They hope that it would also help them sustain their relationship with God. They hope that it would carry their relationship with God. That God would continue to smile on them by their obedience to the law. Because they believe that obedience to the law was one of the ways that we could present ourselves as being pleasing to God. But what the Galatian believers failed to recognize was not only were they incapable of obeying the law to that degree, to the degree that they would be pleasing to God, but that with the coming of Christ, it's now the Spirit and not the law that provides us the means of being pleasing to God. The law is a part of the past. The new era, the era of the Spirit, the Spirit is now given to us to be pleasing to God. And so Paul reminds them that the freedom for which Christ has set us free includes the freedom from having to rely on anything outside of your faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit as a means of both establishing our relationship with God and sustaining our relationship with God. And Paul says that's freedom. To not have to rely on anything other than what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and then the work of his spirit in our lives. That's freedom. But the problem that Paul is up against in the letter to the Galatians, the reason that he's writing it, is because the Galatians were tempted to reject this freedom and to go back to a lifestyle of slavery. But Paul says, if they do, then they need to recognize what's at stake. Look at verse 2. Paul says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Paul says, if you go back to that life of slavery, if you go back to relying on the law, back to relying on anything other than your faith in Jesus and the work of his spirit, then Christ will be of no value to you at all. He'll be useless to you, worthless. And the reason why Christ will be useless to those who want to go back to that lifestyle, to those who want to go back to relying on works, is because God has determined that there's only one condition by which he will relate to us and one condition by which he will uphold us in relation to himself. Paul says that's our faith in Jesus. There's nothing else. There's no other avenue for living the Christian life besides one's faith in the finished work of Christ. And this is precisely where the Galatians went wrong with circumcision. You see, to them, the act of circumcision, not just one's faith, but the act of circumcision was what marked someone out as a real member of God's family. They recalled in the Old Testament where God told Abraham that the sign of the covenant would be the sign of circumcision. And they looked to that and they said, that's still how someone establishes their relationship with God. Paul says, no, that's not it anymore. The Galatian believers, they believed that faith in Jesus, that was a good thing. Yeah, you ought to have faith in Jesus, but that wasn't enough. If you were a male believer, then you needed to be circumcised as well, if you wanted to be a part of the family. There's a story that I heard recently about a man who uh, once 
got Babe Ruth to sign one of his baseballs. And as the years went by, the man uh, watched Babe Ruth's, uh, Babe Ruth's career just absolutely explode before his eyes. And he realized, this baseball is going to be worth a lot of money someday. This autograph is going to be worth a lot of money. But he also recognized that over the years, the ink on the baseball, the original autograph, had begun to fade. And so the man thought that, well, that's going to devalue the baseball. No one's going to want to buy it if, it's, if the ink is fading. And so he took a pen, and he went over the original autograph with his pen to darken it, make it a little bit easier to see. And on the day where he went to sell the baseball, he realized the error of what he had done. Nobody wanted to buy it. By adding to, what that, by adding to the original autograph, he thought he was adding value to it. He was actually making it worthless. Nobody wanted it. And Paul says in the same way, by trying to add human works to our faith in Jesus... We actually render his work on our, on our behalf, we render it worthless. We make it worthless. But there's even more at stake. Paul says if you want to try to establish and sustain your relationship with God on the basis of your works and not on the basis of your faith, well then you'll have to perform flawlessly. You'll have to do it all the time and in every area of life. Look at verse 3. He says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. Paul says, look, if you take this route, if this is the route you want to take, you want to work your way into salvation, and you want to sustain your salvation by your works, well, then you don't get to pick and choose. If you're looking to any portion of the law to make you right with God, you have to obey it all. It's a package deal. You don't get to pick and choose and you have to do it flawlessly. Which brings us to verse 4. He says, you who are trying to be justified by law, you who are trying to be declared righteous in God's sight by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Many years ago, preacher Phillips Brooks defined grace as God's Riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. And I think that's a pretty good definition of grace because it captures well that gospel truth that God's blessings to us and his love to us are all a result of Christ's work on our behalf. God's riches at Christ's expense. And while most Christians would cherish and we would affirm this gospel truth, this definition of grace, many of us have a tendency of limiting grace's application. We see grace as something that was essential for starting the Christian life, for our entrance into the Christian life, but maybe not so essential for continuing the Christian life, for our growth in the Christian life. Grace was necessary for justification, but maybe not as necessary for our sanctification. But what Paul says in verse 4 is that Christians, by definition, are in a state of grace. This is where you live. You are in the realm of grace. This is your default position. 
which is to say that everything we have in the Christian life is a result of grace. From our initial entrance into the Christian life all the way to the completion of the Christian life one day, all of it is owing to grace. But for those who are tempted to rely on their works, to look to their works instead of relying on God's grace alone, Paul issues a warning. And he says that you can fall from grace and be alienated from Christ. And so Paul says, look, it's not our works. It's not our goodness that will sustain us in the Christian life or that will provide for our growth in the Christian life. What will sustain us is what's always sustained us, our faith in Jesus and the work of his spirit. Look at verse 5. He says, but by faith, not by works, but by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. By faith and through the Spirit. So Paul, uh, in verse 5 here, he looks ahead to that future day of judgment, that day when we will finally and fully and forever receive that righteous standing before God, And he says that what will bring us to that day, what will carry us through to that day, is not our works, but our faith in Jesus and the work of the Spirit. By faith and through the Spirit, we await that day eagerly, he says. We await it eagerly, not nervously. We await it eagerly, because we know that what will bring us to that day is not our failed attempts at obeying God, what will bring us to that day is our faith in the one we trust and the work of his spirit. And so that day is actually a day of hope for us because we will be brought there by faith through the spirit. And so by reminding us of the basis of this future day of hope that Paul looks forward to in verse 5, Paul wants to remind us to continue living the Christian life the very same way that you began it. If you began the Christian life by faith in Jesus, and if you began the Christian life through the power of the Spirit, granting you spiritual life, and if it's by the Spirit that you will one day be vindicated, and through the Spirit that you will one day be vindicated, then it stands to reason that the only way you will continue to make progress in the Christian life is by that same faith in Jesus Christ and through the same work of the Spirit in your lives. You have everything you need for growth in Christ. So Paul says, remain in that freedom. Don't add to that. That's slavery. Remain in the freedom for which Christ has set you free. It's the only way forward. And then there's this bit on love. In verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Well, next week, we'll actually have more to say on this topic of love because he'll revisit this topic in verses uh, 13 through 15. But for now, Paul's point here in verse 6 is that on that future day of judgment, he's still future-oriented here in verses 5 and 6. And he says, on that day, what will count for God is not whether or not we have performed some great human achievement or some great human work like circumcision. 
He says what will count for God is whether or not our faith in Jesus resulted in a life of love. That's what will count for God. That's what God will look for. Because in Paul's mind, the only kind of faith that counts in the end, the kind of faith that will vindicate you before God someday, is the kind that expresses itself through love. That's genuine faith. Faith that doesn't express itself through love is not genuine faith. We'll have more to say about that, though, next week. And so having spent the last six verses encouraging us to resist going back to this life of slavery, he's now going to encourage us to resist those who want to enslave us. And he provides us three main reasons for resisting those who want to enslave us. The first thing he says, the first reason to resist these people, he says is because they, re, they, they contradict the very nature of God. Look at verse 7. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. See, Paul says, Christian, go back to when God first called you into relationship with himself. Go back to that time when you first responded in faith to the gospel. He says, it wasn't because of you or because of anything you had done that God called you to himself. There was nothing in you. It was because of God alone. His good purposes, that's why he called you. It's owing to God, not you. Paul says, go back to that time when God called you. Remember, it was all due solely to his good pleasure. Not because of who you are, because of what you had done, but those who want to enslave us, Paul says, they don't know this about God. They don't know that God is a God of grace and that he calls us on the basis of his grace, not because of anything we bring to him. Paul says that's still the way that God relates to us on the basis of his grace, not on anything we bring to the table. A second reason that Paul wants us to resist people who want to enslave us, he says, he says is because if we don't resist them, their teaching will continue to spread and will enslave other people. Verse 9, and he uses the imagery of yeast to, to, to argue for this. Verse 9, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who's throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. There's going to be judgment for false teachers, for promoters of a, work, a gospel of works. There's going to be judgment for them. But Paul says, look, like a little yeast that starts off kind of small, maybe it doesn't look like much, but it spreads to permeate and affect the entire batch of dough. He says bad theology does the same thing. It might start off small, it might look insignificant, but it will spread and it will affect and enslave more and more people. Very rarely does it start off with just one person, it spreads and affects more. And so he says when you see a gospel of works being presented, he says resist it, because if you don't, it will continue to spread. Just like yeast. Well, the third and last reason that Paul wants us to resist people who want to promote a gospel of works, he says, is because their teaching tames the cross. Verse 11. 
He says, brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, which Paul's not, he says, but if I still, if I am, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. That's in the Bible. Paul's that angry. He he takes the gospel of grace that seriously that he could wish physical harm on those who want to promote a gospel of works. And it makes sense. He says, those of you who begin to begin uh, enslaved to a gospel of works, you're alienated from Christ. He takes the gospel of grace that seriously. He could wish physical harm on someone. But what he's especially concerned about here in verses 11 and 12 is a kind of teaching that claims to be Christian and might even be packaged to look Christian-y, and yet it waters down the offense of the cross. He says, that's not Christian. If it waters down the offense of the cross, it's not Christian. And the way that teaching waters down the offense of the cross is by insisting that man can contribute anything to the cross of Christ. Because what got you started in the Christian life are the benefits of the cross. What carries you through in the Christian life are the benefits of the cross. And any teaching that insists that you can add something to your relationship with God outside of what the cross of Christ has already accomplished on your behalf, that's that's wrong. And Paul says that's what makes the cross offensive. It's offensive because it stands as the only basis on which God will relate to us. The only basis on which God will relate to you and will uphold you in relationship to himself is the cross of Christ. And Paul says that's offensive. To human pride, that's offensive. Being told that there's nothing we contribute to the entrance into the Christian life and to the sustaining, the maintaining of our Christian lives, Paul says it's all the due to the benefits of the cross. And any teaching that teaches you otherwise, it tames the cross of Christ. No one enters the Christian life apart from the benefits of the cross being applied to them by faith. No one completes the Christian life apart from the benefits of the cross being applied by faith. And no one will make any progress. No one will grow in the Christian life apart from the benefits of the cross being applied by faith through the Spirit. Paul says that teaching, that's offensive to human pride. Well, one pastor tells a story about a funeral service where the gospel of freedom, the gospel of grace, and the gospel of slavery, or the gospel of works, were both on display. This is what he says about that funeral service. He says, one of my favorite church people is someone that I met during the earliest years of my ministry. Her name was Maudette. Maudette had been widowed for many years. She lived alone, and she loved her flowers. And though her advanced years kept her from tending to her garden carefully and often, it still provided, at times, a riot of colors and rare varieties that she loved to arrange on the platform of our church. Maudette came to our church only on Sunday evenings, She went to morning services at a church that she had attended since she was a child, 
a church that had sadly drifted from its gospel moorings. Maudette stayed loyal to that church, hoping that her influence there might help the succession of young preachers rediscover the gospel, but she came to our church in the evenings for what she called her weekly dose of Bible. Well, the differences in the churches was never more evident than at Maudette's funeral. It was held in her childhood church, and her pastor said a few opening words, praising Maudette's many years of faithful Sunday school attendance, And then it was my turn to read from the scriptures. And I read the passages that she had chosen about the grace of God for all who trust in Christ. Well, next, her pastor gave the eulogy. And he assured family and friends that Maudette was in heaven, well, because she attended church so often. She was really a sweet person. She had a beautiful garden, and she shared her flowers with the church. But then I preached the sermon, as Maudette had requested, and I retold the gospel truths that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. I loved rehearsing how Maudette's appreciation of her Savior had kept her lovingly decorating his church with her flowers for so many years. But what I wanted people to understand was that the beauty of her service was an expression of her love for Christ, not a payment or a bribe to make her love him to make him love her more my wife later said that attending that funeral was like watching two preachers boxing one would throw a good works left jab and the other would throw the gospel right hook who won that day well i don't know who won that day i do know that maudette wanted the gospel to win for the day that her loved ones would face eternity her hope was not in her flowers, but in her Savior. She did not want who she was before God to rest in what she had done in her garden. Fragile flowers are beautiful, but our hope for eternity needs to rest on something far more firm. That firm foundation, Paul says in Galatians 5, is the cross of Christ, which we trust in by faith, and cling to through the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, would you keep us in this freedom? Keep us relying on the work of Christ by faith, and the work of your Spirit, that you have supplied us to carry us through to complete the Christian life and to one day be vindicated before you at the day of judgment. Keep us in this freedom. Cause us, we pray, to not turn to human effort, human works, to establish or to sustain our relationship with you, but to continue relying on the things that you have supplied for us, our faith in Jesus and the work of your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake and for our good. Amen.